Good morning. It's great to see so many faces back from summer and to have you here this morning. You have, uh, you've come back in the midst of an expositional series in the book of Romans, so uh, welcome to that. Uh, so far, God has made uh, an incredible number of striking statements about his gospel. It's the power of God for the salvation of all who believe, and that includes both Jew and Gentile. Through its proclamation, both the wrath of God and the righteousness of God have been revealed to mankind. Embracing this gospel by faith brings with it spiritual life. It delivers us from wrath, and by it we are, big word, justified. Meaning that ungodly, rebellious sinners are declared righteous in God's sight. And so the salvation proclaimed in the gospel comes completely apart from our obedience, apart from our works, it's grounded solely in the work of Christ on the cross, and it's purchased there. It comes by the grace of God and purchased at the cross. And those points that Paul has been delivering to us about the gospel are so striking, in fact, that the enemies that Paul was facing in his day could easily argue that the message that he was preaching was his own invention, and that it was a betrayal of the Judaism that he was claiming to uphold. And so as we close chapter 3 last week and we open up chapter 4 this morning, Paul's task is now to prove that his gospel is not something new. That it's not some personal innovation that he's come up with, some, some weird path away from the truth that he's come up with in order to justify the coming into the kingdom of these filthy Gentiles, at least in the eyes of the Jews. And so his passion here is to show us that not only was this gospel revealed to him by the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's the very same gospel that is witnessed by the law and the prophets. In fact, he made that case back in chapter 3, verse 21, and now it's imperative that he defend his doctrine of justification by faith by showing us where it is in the Old Testament. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, grab it and turn to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, look at that, we're going to cover 12 verses today. Be still my beating heart, right? Not two, not four, 12 verses. Wow, we are moving. By the way, do you know why I do that, right? Just so if you're you're wondering why is it two and then 12, it's simply because I'm trying to group together a unit of thought and to do it in such a way that I can put it thoroughly into a 40 to 45 minute 50-minute sermon. And I think we can do that today with 12 verses. So are you in Romans 4? Just as a reminder, who is Paul writing to? He's writing to this young church in Rome that is composed of a majority of Gentile Christians. But no doubt there would have been Jewish believers as well. And you have to think about, you have to sort of put put your sandals on and try to get back to the first century. You have to imagine that these Jewish Christians would have been raised in the Judaic system, the rabbinic system. And the teaching that salvation was very different, in fact, in direct contradiction to what Paul has just said in chapter 3. So this would have been confusing. The rabbis of Paul's day would have been teaching that God's election of his people and their salvation was based on personal merit. First of all, by their ethnic identity. Second of all, by the sign of circumcision. Third, by their obedience to the law of Moses. And fourth, by their participation in the sacrificial system laid out in the Torah. 
And so being present in the church of Rome, these Jewish Christians, yeah, they would have embraced Jesus as Messiah and Savior, and they would know something of the, the grace into which they've entered, but you can imagine that there would probably still be some lingering confusion based on what they were taught as a child in Judaism and what Paul is now teaching. Confusion about these terms, justification and faith and works and the law, and how it all fits together. So let's see how Paul explains it to them here, beginning in verse, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as what? As righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as what? Righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Verse 7. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also. For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. Wow. Whew. How many times did I say uncircumcised and righteousness in there, right? Okay, I know that's, that's a little confusing. We're going to break this down, and it's going to become clear. There's two lines of argumentation that Paul uses here in order to prove that his doctrine of justification by faith is both true and nothing new. And nothing new. Here they are. The first argument is that works are simply insufficient to justify a sinner. And the second argument is that rites and rituals are equally lacking. So let's start with that first one. Let's talk about works. Now, you can imagine Paul's enemies here, had they been reading or hearing this letter, especially what he wrote at the end of chapter 3, they would have been tearing their garments and gnashing their teeth at the idea that a man could be made right before God simply by faith. What about the law? They would have asked. What about obedience? What about holiness? What about the, the ritual sacrifices? And Paul, as, I, as I've said before, he's so good at anticipating the objections that are going to come, come his way. He anticipates here, and he challenges them in verse 4 by basically saying, Okay, look, I get it. You're struggling with this idea of justification by faith. So, in order to settle the debate, let's take a look at our forefather, our common ancestor, Abraham. When we look at his situation, what do we find? Now, that would have been very challenging. Now, we're talking about the very fountainhead of Judaism, right? And so he challenges them with Father Abraham. Now, the rabbis, how would they have responded? Fantastic. In fact, we would love to talk about Abraham. Here's the thing. The rabbis in Paul's day had come to see Abraham as uniquely chosen by God because of his personal righteousness. 
because of his obedience. And believe it or not, if you take a look at the Talmud and some of the literary flow of ancient Judaism, you actually find that many of the rabbis in the first century believed that Abraham was sinless, that he kept the law the entire portion of his life. And you say, come on, now that's, that's crazy, right? But I'll give you three examples. Three examples. The first one comes from a a work called The Prayer of Manasseh. Now, The Prayer of Manasseh is uh, part of the Apocrypha that was written during the intertestamental period. And look what this unknown author writes. Therefore, you, O Lord, the God of the righteous, you have not appointed repentance for the righteous, for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who did not sin against you, but you have appointed repentance for me, a sinner. Now, that's what we call pseudepigrapha. That's, that's a, 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 liter, a piece of literature that is written by an unknown person, but written under the name of a very famous historical character. So this was not written by the King Manasseh of the Bible. It was written by an unknown Palestinian Jew sometime around the 2nd century B.C., prior to the coming of Christ. But the point of putting that up is to show how, first of all, how much reverence the Jews had for the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but also to show how much really bad theology had seeped into the Jewish community over the centuries. Here's a second example. This comes from the Book of, whoa, from the book of Jubilees. The Book of Jubilees, also written about the same time as the Prayer of Manasseh and again by an unknown Jew. The Book of Jubilees, they claimed, was an extra revelation given to Moses by angels on Mount Sinai. And as a part of this, it says Abraham was perfect in his deeds. Perfect in his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. Wow. One last example from probably the most famous of all the intertestamental works. If it'll go, there it goes. This is from the book of Sirach. And we know who wrote this, a man named Ben Sirah. And he lived about 180 B.C., And here's what he wrote. Abraham was the great father of a multitude of nations, and no one has been found like him in glory. He kept the law of the Most High and certified the covenant with his flesh. So clearly, as Paul's writing to to this church in Rome, a significant number of Jewish authorities had come to believe that Abraham was righteous for one reason, because he obeyed the law, because he kept the law completely. Because of his obedience and good works, that was sufficient to justify him before God. That's what the Jewish community believed. Of course, Paul knew this, right? Paul was, was immersed in the Jewish community. He knew exactly what was going on out there, and he knew that these rabbinical teachings would have had an impact on the Jewish believers in the church at Rome, and by the way, possibly on the Gentile believers as well. So he's eager to take up this issue. And to deal especially with Abraham. So he does two things here in order to straighten this out. And I love the way he does this because Paul is a master apologist. First of all, he uses logic to confound them. And then he takes them to the scriptures. Look at verse 2. Look what he says in verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast in, but not before God. Now, this is Paul challenging the logic of the rabbis. He says to them, look, are you really prepared to say? Think about this before you answer. Are you prepared to say that Abraham could boast before God? And the answer that would come back would be absolutely not. No Jew would ever, they would see that as absurd that any human being could ever stand and boast before the Almighty. They had too much respect and fear of Yahweh to make that claim. So their logic fails them here. If Abraham was sinless, as 
as the Talmud and other writings have said, if he was sinless, if he could stand before God in his own righteousness by his own works, it logically follows that he can boast. Do we understand that? If you are at all responsible for your salvation, even a small amount, you have every reason to boast. Look, I could say, look, I'm smarter than everybody else. I'm more spiritual than everybody else. I just, I was smarter than them. And so I did X, Y, or Z combined with God's grace to be saved. I have a reason to boast. That's a problem, isn't it? So the proposition is this. A man who is justified by his own merit can boast. So if Abraham had obeyed completely, his boasting would be entirely appropriate. But Abraham can't boast before God, and everybody agreed on that. Therefore, there's no way that he was justified by what he did. There had to be another reason for him to be justified before God. And what we're going to find out is it simply came down to this. He believed. He believed. So that's the first thing Paul wants to point out. The logical argument in terms of boasting that the rabbis were promulgating. But then in verse 3, look, he takes them to the scriptures. He goes to the Old Testament and he says, so what does the scripture say? And by the way, that's a really good way to do apologetics, isn't it? Right? Logic is always good, but eventually you got to get to the text. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, that's Genesis 15, 6. That's an incredibly important verse for us to know and understand. Take a look at it right now. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, again, this is Old Testament, right? Genesis 15, 6. Is there anything in that verse that speaks of a series of good deeds done by Abraham? Or a lifetime of good deeds? No. Does it mention his own personal righteousness at all? No. Does Genesis 15, 6 point out that Abraham kept the law completely? No. And this is Paul's obvious point that he's trying to get. The text says he simply believed God. That's it. In Genesis 15, God came to Abraham with great promises. Do you remember what they were? In Genesis, Genesis 12 was the beginning of the covenant with Abraham. In chapter 15, he promised him a son, didn't he? An heir. And he promised him descendants as many as the stars that he could see in the sky. Now, it wasn't Abraham who came to God in faith first. And then God said, oh, look at your faith. I'm going to make promises. That is not the way it worked. How did it work? It was God who came to Abraham first, he is the initiator. He comes with promises, and Abraham, the man, responds. Initiator and responder. This is the way God always does it in salvation, in your life. God comes as the initiator. He calls. He regenerates. He gives the gift of faith. He saves. All we do is say, yes, Lord, right? That's the way it's always been. And here's the amazing thing about those promises that God brought which brought about Abraham's response, they were utterly unconditional in nature. That's huge. What does it mean that that a promise is unconditional? It means the fulfillment of those things, that son that was coming, Isaac, and the descendants, as many as the stars, those things were not contingent upon anything in Abraham. Not his obedience, not his works, not his righteousness. Those things would come to pass for one reason, because God is faithful. They're unconditional promises. So when Genesis 15, 6 says that Abraham responded by believing God, that's what he was believing. He put his trust in God's spoken word to him, God's promises, and he trusted because of the character of Yahweh that he would do everything that he said he would do. What was Abram's part? Yes, Lord. That's it. He simply 
believed. And what was the result? The text says righteousness was credited to him. In theology, we use this term imputed. I've decided I'm going to do this from now on. Oh, there it is. I'm going to put up big words that we use in, in church. And I would maybe just keep a running total. So if you guys have any questions, so far I've used justification, intertestamental, apocrypha, pseudepigrapha, and now imputed. If you have any questions on those words, please come and see me. But imputed is a really important word. It's actually borrowed from the world of accounting. And this is interesting. We talked about how justification is a legal term. It's borrowed from the world of law. But the idea of crediting or imputing is a bookkeeper's term. Many years ago, when I first got out of college, many years ago, back in the 80s, my very first job was as an escrow officer. I was an escrow officer in beautiful Beverly Hills, California. And I learned a great deal about accounting and bookkeeping as an escrow officer. When you look at an escrow file, you always had a ledger in front of you. It was always, every time you opened a file, there was always this ledger. And the ledger had two columns, one for credits and one for debits, right? Pluses or minuses, if you want to look at it that way. And on the debit side was, was the purchase price of the property and all the fees that go with buying a home. And on the, the, the credit side was the, the cash the buyer was bringing in plus the mortgage money. And so the whole idea of an escrow was at the end of the transaction, the two sides balance out. You have credits and debits and it zeroes out. That's basically what escrow is. And we get a similar picture here with this idea of imputing or crediting of righteousness. Abraham... If you, want to, if you want to carry the analogy out, Abraham had two columns representing his life. And prior to his conversion, his debit column was full. Sin. Sin, 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 sin. Just like you and me, right? And his credit column was empty. But at the point of conversion, at that point that he believed God, according to Genesis 15, all those debits were lifted out. And they were imputed, credited to the account of another. To who? To Jesus Christ, who would someday take responsibility for every one of those debits and pay the ransom for it on the cross. And the righteousness of Jesus was then placed in Abraham's credit column. So Abraham gets all the credits and he loses all the debits. Folks, that's our story today. God is still doing this. This is what we call the double imputation. We talked about this several weeks ago. Our sins are credited to Jesus and his Righteousness is credited to us. That is amazing stuff, is it not? The double imputation. So Paul then goes on to explain his logic, if you look at verses 4 and 5, and he continues with this this sort of metaphor of accounting and employment. Look at verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due, right? When I work hard, I expect to get paid. Can I get an Amen. Right? It's a deserved reward from my employer, right? For my time and my labor, I deserve it, right? I don't expect my employer to say, hey, Jeff, here's a, uh, here's a paycheck just, ah, just as a favor because we like you. Nobody expects that, right? I've earned it. In fact, it's my, and, and Scott can maybe answer, where's Scott? Scott can probably help us with this. It's my legal right to demand payment of my employer. Thank you. <laughs> Right on cue, our lawyer. It's my legal right to demand payment, and my employer is legally and morally obligated to pay me according to my efforts. That's why Paul is using this metaphor, because it was true in the first century as much as it's true today. So if Abraham was justified by his hard work, 
then grace is out the window, isn't it? He deserves to be saved. Now, whenever you put that phrase together, that should make you go, oh, he deserved to be saved. If he worked hard enough for it, and if his works were sufficient to justify him, he deserves it. It's a wage. So catch this. If Abraham was justified by his works, he could justifiably demand that God save him. Think about that. And God would be compelled to grant him salvation, not by grace, but as a matter of legal obligation. That's what Paul's going at here. And again, just saying that out loud makes me shudder, right? Because we we know how wrong that is. And so how many systems of faith are out there right now that teach some form of divine grace plus things that human beings do, yet we don't shudder at that until we put it in those very plain terms that we're somehow earning something. And it's no longer grace, it's it's a wage. And we can demand payment from God and he's compelled. I guess there's nothing I can do. You earned it, here it is. It's so wrong, right? So unbiblical. Friends, God owes us nothing. If we don't start there, we're not going to understand the gospel. But trust me, there's a lot of people out here, especially Americans, right, that believe God does owe us something. He owes us nothing. He doesn't owe us the death of his son. He doesn't owe us the giving of his spirit. He doesn't owe us any spiritual favor at all. And if a man insists on relating to God as he would his employer, demanding to be compensated for his works, then he will indeed be paid the wages that he's owed. Death. For the wages of sin is death, right? Both physical and spiritual. Verse 5, But to the one who does not work, here's the other side of the coin, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is imputed credited as righteousness. So there it is, salvation by grace alone through faith, right? There it is, right there. The righteousness Abraham received from God by faith was not a reward because he didn't work for it. He didn't earn it. He didn't deserve it. It wasn't owed to him. It was an unmerited gift, an act of pure grace. That's what Genesis 15, 6 tells us. Now, before we leave Father Abraham, I feel like there's Some things I need to point out about his life and his situation. And maybe you already thought about these things. It's sort of hard to believe that rabbis in his day would say that Abraham was sinless. Have you read Genesis? Were you thinking that? It's hard to believe, isn't it? But this is is the spiritual blindness that can fall upon scholars and can fall upon rabbis and, and, and people that aren't looking at the text. They're more concerned with their traditions. If you've read Genesis 12 to 20, you know that Abraham was a man who fell into sin repeatedly, right? When he was put into the pressure cooker of life, he failed, right? Welcome to, well, yeah, me too, and you, right? We've, when we're put into the pressure cooker, we often fail. Abraham did as well, right? He lied. He deceived. He put his family at risk. He even put the covenant at risk. So in short, Abraham was a man who had to repent just like you and me, But we can be encouraged by his life because of this. In the midst of his failures, in the midst of Abraham's doubts, God still had his mark of love on Abraham. And so he still sovereignly willed and chose to come and call him and give him these great promises in spite of his sin, in spite of his failure. Friends, that's the great encouragement I take from Abraham's life because God's still doing that today with me. And hopefully with you as well. God is in the business of taking men and women who he's marked out for salvation. And in spite of our idolatry, in spite of our, 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 our sin, in spite of our failures, he still saves us by his grace. 
And not only saves us, he then comes and gives us great promises, right? We think Abraham got such great promises. What about our promises that we've received? They are immense and they are amazing. Every spiritual blessing has been given to us. God is still in that business today. That is good news. So if you're here this morning and you're feeling unworthy of his love, you're feeling discouraged and disappointed in yourself, you're feeling like a failure, you're feeling like I keep repeating my sins, you're in good company with Abraham. If you're discouraged right now, know he hasn't abandoned you. To the contrary, he's still faithfully working in you to complete the work that he started. Can I get an amen to that? By the way, as an aside, before we move on, if you're wondering if these verses in particular are a problem for the Roman Catholic Church or the Mormon Church or any religion or faith system that continues to say that we're saved by some combination of God's grace and the cooperation of human beings, absolutely. This passage is an immense stumbling block for the Roman Catholic Church in particular. At the Council of Trent in 1544, the Catholic Church put a stake in the ground on this issue. And they declared an anathema upon anyone that says that salvation, that justification is by faith alone, without cooperating work. They put the stake down in the sand. And to this day, they insist that humans have to cooperate with grace in order to be saved. And really what they're saying, and they would never say it out loud, but the truth is, what they're saying is is that Christ's work on the cross is good, but it's not enough. It's just not enough. Your good works need to be added to that. So I say all that so that you can highlight these verses. If you have Roman Catholic friends, if you have Mormon friends, or you have Mormons that knock on doors in your neighborhood, highlight these verses. Exposit them to those folks. Love them with it. And see if God doesn't do a work in their heart. Amen? All right, let's move on to, and this will be much quicker, I promise, to Paul's second example of the inadequacy of works. We're going to go to King David, right? And what an important example King David is in Paul's argument. Here's the thing. David is different from Abraham in this sense. Everybody in the first century, the rabbis and everybody, understood that David was a great sinner. I mean, that really, in spite of you know, this, this statement that he is a, a man after God's heart, everybody's aware that he was involved in what? Adultery and murder, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so... Uh, The fact that David is justified through faith in the very same way that Abraham is provides a really good balance to Paul's argument here. So we got this man who the rabbis say was sinless, and here's how he saved. And here's David that everybody knows was a mess, and here's how he saved, and it's the very same way. It's an important part of his argument. Look at verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. So this is from Psalm 32. This quote tells us that David, just like Abraham, understood, believed, and taught justification by faith. He did. In the Old Testament. And this is Paul doing good apologetic work. After all, if you're going to speak to to Jews in your audience... Who's going to argue with Abraham and David? This is good apologetic work, right? We got the the founder of Judaism and we got the greatest king in the history of Israel. Who's going to argue with that, right? David recognized this fact, folks, that a forgiven man is a blessed man. A forgiven man is a blessed man. Notice David didn't say a deserving man is blessed. A forgiven man is blessed. The blessed man is the one whose sins have been covered. 
whose sins have been concealed by the Almighty, whose sins will not be taken into account on the day of judgment. That's a blessed man. Now notice that language, not taken into account. Guess what? We're back to the world of, account, world of accounting. In fact, it's the very same Hebrew word used by Moses in Genesis 15.6. Blessed are the man whose sins are not found on his ledger. Interesting that we have the same, same verbiage going on here. Well, if they're not on the ledger, where did they go? Again, they've been lifted out of David's column, and they've been moved, imputed, transferred to another's account. They have to go somewhere, right? If those sins are just lifted out of the debit column and erased, God's not just anymore, is he? He can't be just in the justifier, as Paul said in chapter 3. So they've got to be paid by somebody. The penalty must be rendered. And because God so loved the world, because he so loved David and Abraham and you and me, he sent his son. That's the gospel. And David knows something about forgiveness, does he not? I mean, of all the people, he understood the weight and the guilt of some of the worst sins we can imagine, but also the freedom of God's forgiveness. He's rejoicing here in Psalm 32 that his heinous sins would not be taken into account by the Lord, that another would step in and pay his debt. He knew that. He knew that someone else would step in and pay that debt for him. This is why we sing praise, right? Now, there might be somebody here this morning, I'm just going to challenge you, if you're here this morning, and and let's just say you grew up in the church, you grew up around the church, and you feel like, you know, you've been a pretty spiritual person, you're you're a good person, you have a, a big heart for people, you like to help others, maybe you do charity work, you give money to good causes, you, you consistently think the best of people, you don't hate anybody, And although you might not say it out loud, somewhere in your heart you're like, God really ought to accept me. I'm a pretty good person. I'm doing better than most of the crazy people out there. Right? I've tried really hard. I feel like I'm doing pretty well. And and look, hell is for bad people, heaven's for good people, and surely I'm on the right side of that. If you're that person, know this today. David and Paul agree. If you're trusting in anything other than the sacrifice of Christ, you are not the blessed man. You're the opposite. You're the cursed man. If you're trusting in anything other than the sacrifice of Christ, you are not the blessed man. The blessed man is the one who has long since passed trying to prove himself to God. Long since passed thinking, there's anything in me that I can, you know, can commend me before the Lord. That's the blessed man. The blessed man is the man whose deeds God doesn't look at. Think about that. We often say, well, if God would just look at my body of work here, look how good it is. No, blessed is the man whom God doesn't look at his deeds. He looks to something greater, to what Christ has done. That's the blessed man. That's what David is trying to say here. As we move on to verse 9, it's important now, as we look back at these verses, verses 1 through 8 are so important to our understanding of the gospel. It's important to look back. What I want you to see here, look at the continuity of the scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Using these great Old Testament examples, Paul shows us that God has always operated by grace. It's always been one way. Yes, he's operated with his people differently with Israel, the nation, and the church. They're not the same thing, but it's always been by grace when it comes to justifying sinners. Always. 
Salvation is one and the same in every age. One God, one Lord, one gospel, one faith. Whether it's an Old Testament saint or a saint under the new covenant, salvation is accomplished by the same means, the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. And it's received by the same means, by faith alone. Know that, folks, because oftentimes as Christians, you know, you get this question, well, well, how did people get saved before Jesus? Here's the answer. We know the answer. It's always been by grace. All right, so in these first eight verses, Paul has established now this inadequacy of works to justify a sinner. What about rituals? Let's look at this real quickly. There it is. What about external rituals? Look at verse 9. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? Paul's asking a rhetorical question here. This blessing that David is speaking about, this blessing of having your sins washed away, is it only for Jews or for Gentiles also? Every Gentile, raise your hand. Oh, good, it's for Gentiles too. Praise the Lord, right? Now, the standard answer in the first century in Jewish circles would be, nope, only for the circumcised. Circumcision is what marked you out as being insured as a a, a part of the people of God, and uncircumcision proved the opposite, that you didn't belong in the people of God. So how does Paul respond to this? This is brilliant. This is brilliant apologetics. He's going to do some some Bible chronology here. Look what he says. For we say, faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness, verse 10. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? I think today we call that a mic drop. Did I get that right? Yes. That is a mic drop. Because the Jews in his audience would have went, oh. I mean, maybe they hadn't really thought this through, but bam, this is, this is a shot across the bow. Because here's the reality. Click. Justin, help me. There it is. Abraham was credited with righteousness before he was circumcised. Oh. Those Jews who were counting on circumcision. But Abraham was justified before that. Man, that doesn't fit my narrative, does it? So here's the chronology. Abraham was justified by God in Genesis 15 at the age of 86. Circumcision, the sign of the covenant between he and God, was established 14 years later when he was 100. And as we talked about last week, Abraham's faith was tested 15 or 16 years after that when he was asked to sacrifice Isaac on the altar. So justification, get that, came before circumcision and the great work of obedience on Mount Moriah. In one case, 14 years before, and the other, somewhere around 30 years before the testing. We looked at James 2 last week, how James quotes that that particular event, but it happened somewhere around 30 years after he was justified. Paul's point here is twofold. First of all, to emphasize that justification is not only apart from works, but it's apart from external rituals and rites like circumcision. And this is important for us today in a crazy world where there's so many religious streams of thought and and people are always trying to add something to God's grace, right? The idea that we're saved by grace plus a, a certain form of baptism, right? Or we're saved by grace plus attendance at a particular church service, or we're saved by grace plus a secondary experience of the Holy Spirit, or we're saved by grace plus confession to a member of the clergy, or we're saved by grace plus some mystical experience with communion. We reject all those things based on Scripture. Justification is apart from external rites and rituals, even circumcision. 
Paul just proved that from the Old Testament. By the way, that doesn't mean that every rite and ritual is meaningless, right? There are two great ordinances of the church, baptism and communion, and they represent awesome spiritual realities. They're, they're symbolic and they matter. But here's the thing, as meaningful as baptism is, as meaningful as it is to come to the Lord's table, and it's a sacred time, none of that adds to your justification. None of it. You catch the balance there, it's important, but it doesn't save you. Justification by faith alone. Were you justified before or after your baptism? Before, right? You can say it. Were you justified before or after you came to the Lord's table? Before. Was Abraham justified before or after his circumcision? Before. So that's the first thing. The second thing that Paul wants to point out here in verses 9 to 12 is that justification by faith has been granted to both Jew and Gentile. He's elaborating on this here in these last two verses. This is going to be really quick. Verse 11. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. Again, this is a reference to the Gentiles. Here's what he's saying. Because Abraham was was justified before his circumcision, he is now our spiritual father as Gentiles. Praise the Lord, right? He's not just the father of the Jews, but of the Gentiles as well. Those who believe, those who trust in Christ alone. Why? Because he was justified before the sign of circumcision came. Last verse, verse 12. And the father of circumcision to those who are not only of the circumcision, but also who follow in the steps of faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. So, again, what he's saying is, yes, he's father of the Gentiles, and he remains father of the Jews for those Jews who walk in his footsteps by what? By faith, and not by the law, and not by obedience, and not by the sacrificial system, but the Jews who will walk as Abraham walked, simply believing God. Wow. So, how do we extract application from this, right? Like, what, what does this mean to us? As I've been saying week after week, guys, this is the heart of the gospel. God's grace alone through faith alone. It's the heart of the gospel. And every person in this room is impacted by that. No matter who you are, we all need to grasp it. So if you're here this morning and you're unsure about your standing with God, the answer from the text here could not be more clear. Trust not in yourself. Trust not in yourself. Don't trust in your works. Don't trust in any rite or ritual. Well, Jeff, I was baptized when I was a baby. Don't trust in it. Not in your works, not in any rite, not in any ritual. Because when you get to the the throne of God on the day of judgment, you don't have the currency to pay the debt for your sin. You don't have it. You don't have enough good works in your credit column to outweigh the, the sins in your debit column. It's just bad accounting. And on the day of judgment, your ledger is going to condemn you. Your ledger will condemn you. Have you ever seen a, um, a professional fight a wildfire like up in the mountains? Very dangerous work. And sometimes they die, don't they? Sometimes they, they get overwhelmed by a fire. But everyone, every fire jumper who fights a fire... Here's what he knows. When that fire is coming at him and he has nowhere to go, do you know what he does? He deploys a cover. It's called a fire shelter. 
It's the last ditch effort. The fire's coming, he can't escape it. Hits the ground and he covers himself with this thing and he lets the fire burn over him. And he trusts in that cover to save him from being burned. Friends, scripture tells us that in relation to his enemies, God is a consuming fire. He's a consuming fire. And none of us here today are promised tomorrow. And so if you were to face the Lord today, you're going to want a covering. Because you're not going to want to stand there and face that consuming fire without that cover. It will reduce you to ashes. So don't be found trusting in anything but his righteousness, his covering on that day. Now, if you're a believer here this morning and you're struggling with assurance right now, what I want you to see in this passage is the faithfulness of God. I want you to see how faithful he is. I want you to know that your status before him, listen now, your status before him is not contingent upon your performance. Did you know that? Because we, we in conservative Bible teaching churches, we love to beat ourselves up. We, lo- we, we say we don't count on our works, but boy, do we beat ourselves up over it. I want you to trust this week. I want you to rest in him. I want you to know that he's not looking down on you and he's not angry with you because you're not performing as you should. This week, I want you to simply rest in him. I want you to, to rest in his grace. I want you to seek the relationship, not just trying to do the right thing all the time in your own strength. I want you to seek an abiding relationship with him this week and to rest there and to see that he doesn't respond to you by giving you the peace that you need, by giving you the assurance that you need and also giving you the strength to walk in obedience because you can't do it alone. If you're struggling with assurance right now, see the faithfulness of God. Know that he is doing a work in you. He's completing the work that he started. For the rest of us who are believers, who know the Lord Jesus Christ, Honestly, this passage is just one to step back and marvel at, to recognize the grace that you've received. To, every time we get into this, I want you to see afresh the beauty of the gospel. I want you to see the continuity from Old Testament to New, and I want you to see the unconditional nature of his grace. So important. I want us to proclaim with David, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Every day that we get to praise his name for that reason is a good day, isn't it? Every day that we get to sing his praises because of what we read in the text is a good day. And when we're done here in just a a few seconds, we get to sing again. We We get the pleasure of singing together corporately to worship the Lord who's done so much for us. We get to sing about the rock on which we stand. Pray with me, would you? Lord, don't let us take for granted this great story, this gospel story. Don't let us grow apathetic. Don't let us grow entitled. Help us to see again how you've been working from from Genesis to today, how you were working in the life of the Roman church, how it's always been by grace, this great continuity, and how, Lord, it's almost hard to even say that you have included me in this, that in this grand story, thousands of years, you've included us. And you've marked us out for salvation. You've sovereignly willed to come and bring us great promises, promises of life with you. May that sink deep into our hearts this morning. May it affect the roots of our faith so that 
spiritual fruit is born on the branches. Not because we're in fear of you, not because you're angry, but because we desire to abide in you and to bear that fruit. Lord, convict those this morning who need to be convicted about their status before you. Lord, give assurance to those who are struggling right now that you love them and help us marvel once again at your glory. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.